I'm going to continue with our series, God Amongst Us, Worshipping God Together, under the title, A Spectator Sport. Now, with a question mark, of course, because it isn't. (laughs) Now I'm going to introduce it by talking a little bit generally uh, for a few moments. I I hope this is helpful to you. Um, And I pray that what I say this morning will provoke your thoughts at every level, whoever you are, young or old, whatever your church tradition before you came here, whatever you imagine or envision should be happening on a Sunday morning or when you gather in a small group, I I just pray your minds will be open and uh, you'll allow the Holy Spirit to provoke you and provoke your thoughts this morning. You see, this book, the Bible, is our ultimate authority for all matters of doctrine and practice as Christians. It is our ultimate authority in every aspect of our personal lives, and it also is there to give direction and influence our corporate life, our church life. It provides inspiration, and it provides instruction for what we do together as a church, how we behave together, and uh, and what we, we do when we come together. Now, down through the years, the centuries, many different people, many different movements, many different groups, many different cultures have impacted on church and what we do as church and how it, how it should be when we come together. And some of the things that have shaped the numerous denominations, including our own groupings, some of the things that have shaped have been very good over the centuries. Some you'd say, well, it's neutral. Not, and some have actually been negative and bad and have taken us away from what the Holy Spirit put down in the first place in the Bible. This isn't just a work of man. This is a work of God. The, the letters we have, and we're going to read a bit of one this morning, Paul's letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, they, they weren't the only thing Paul wrote. And it's not that everything Paul wrote was of the same inspiration, the same level. The Holy Spirit made sure we got what we needed for the church age, right through till Jesus comes back. And he made sure we had 1 Corinthians. And the Holy Spirit made sure we had 1 Corinthians, including chapter 14, which we're going to dip into this morning. And that's not an accident. That's deliberate. That's with purpose. That's to give shape and direction to the church right through until Jesus comes back. So if we're serious and sincere Christians, we must place a high value on endeavouring to keep ourselves in harmony with the Bible in our own lives and in our corporate life, and our church life. The churches that were established by the apostles in the New Testament era, they remain the valid models for all churches in all times and all cultures. And if only the church for the last 2,000 years had taken that seriously, we would be in a better place. This is not my subject this morning, but if you just think of what this book says about local church leadership, about elders and the qualities to look for, the character issues and how they should behave, take that seriously and you will iron out 70% of the leadership crises that the church has seen in the last 2,000 years. Take God's word seriously Apply it in the power of the Holy Spirit and church will work brilliantly, honestly. 
And so we want to have that same attitude as we think about our gatherings and our worship together. Now, biblical examples, and we'll be looking at an example in a minute, what happened in a particular church, which was probably to some degree characteristic of what happened in early churches when they gathered for worship and to gather together. Examples are not commands. So you don't take an example and say, that is a command, you've got to do it. But examples are given for a purpose. They're given to give shape and flow and direction to the church. And the Holy Spirit loves to work with the Word. The Word and the Spirit work together. The Holy Spirit flows along the channels the Word cuts. That's how it was at creation. When God spoke, the Holy Spirit did it. The Spirit was hovering. God spoke, let there be. You get the sense the Spirit of God was the actualizer. He made it happen. And so that's what happens when you get saved. That's what happens in all sorts of settings. But actually, when we look at the Word and try and apply it with sincere hearts, the Spirit of God's working with us. He wants it to work. The Word and the Spirit work together. So we need to take that seriously as we look at this this morning. Now, my text this morning is 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters, when you come together... Each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. Now that's a text, one little text. And you always need to see a text in a context because that's how you understand it and what God was saying. So it's important we have a little bit of context to this text. This verse comes in the middle of 1 Corinthians 14. And 1 Corinthians 14 is an amazing chapter. It's quite unusual, actually. It gives a lot of detail about a gathering or the gatherings of the church at Corinth. It gives some extraordinary detailed teaching on the Holy Spirit's gift of prophecy and of speaking in tongues and of interpreting interpreting tongues. It's quite a, a detailed number of verses. Now, the Holy Spirit wanted us to have that detail. It's there for a purpose, as I keep saying. It's inspired for our instruction, personally to instruct us, and corporately as churches. And I think in the light of that, with so much of the New Testament, it amazes me, and it is amazing, how this chapter has been ignored down through the centuries, essentially, or just slightly uh, explained away, or maybe chopped about a bit, little bits used as appropriate, for a particular movement or group's views. It's, it's been often not taken seriously, the whole chapter and the flow of what it says and what the Holy Spirit's saying to us. So let's read a few verses. We can't read the whole chapter, but I do want to read a selection of verses, and they will, in a sense, begin to speak for themselves, honestly. I want you to get a feel that this is living stuff. This is about how they were meeting in the first century. But it's not a historical document that's just curiosity. That's a bit interesting. It's there. The Holy Spirit has given us this one, this, this, this book, this letter, to give us shape and to speak to us as followers of Jesus who gather together to worship him. Right. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire gifts of the Spirit, especially prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. Indeed, no one understands them. They utter mysteries by the Spirit. 
But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. The one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so the church may be edified. Let's drop down to verse 12. Since you are eager for gifts of the Spirit, try to excel in those that build up the church. For this reason, the one who speaks in a tongue should pray that they may interpret what they say. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my understanding. Otherwise, when you're praising God in the spirit... How can someone else, who is now put in the position of an inquirer, say amen to your thanksgiving since they do not know what you're saying? You're giving thanks well enough, but no one else is edified. Drop down to verse 23. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, the inquirers or unbelievers and inquirers or unbelievers come in, that will they not say that you're out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or an inquirer comes in while everyone's prophesying, They are convicted of sin and are brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. So they will fall down and worship God, and exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at the most three should speak, one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and to God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what's said. And if a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged." The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregations of the Lord's people. Last couple of verses, 39 and 40. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. As I said, a lot of detail fascinating, not accidental, deliberately given us by the Holy Spirit. Quickly for you then, Corinth was a big city, probably 600,000 people, as big as putting Southampton and Portsmouth together and all in between. So we're not talking little tiny back streets here. It was a big cosmopolitan pagan city with a lot of different religions and a lot of very immoral behavior as it happens. But in that city, a mighty, thriving church had been raised up. People had been gloriously saved. They'd come from all sorts of backgrounds. And here's a little taste, if you could put up the next one. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11, tell us a taste of the sort of people and what had happened as the gospel hit Corinth. Paul writes them earlier on, Do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But that is what some of you were. But you were washed. 
You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There was a right old mixed bunch. Background-wise, they'd been right in it. All sorts of sins, all sorts of gross behavior one way and another. But the gospel had come. They were washed clean. Washed clean. Isn't that a beautiful idea? In the blood of Jesus, cleansed, sanctified. That means they were set apart for God. They had become God's precious possession. Justified. That means it was just as if I'd never sinned. It was like their sins were completely removed and washed away. In and through the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, that good news still applies today. And those verses are also relevant today as much as anything I read in 1 Corinthians 14. The same Holy Spirit is here this morning. If you don't know Jesus, you can be saved. Nothing in your background need keep you from coming to Jesus. Nothing. You can be washed. You can be sanctified. You can be justified. You can become a child of God. You can be, become uh, one of his precious possessions, one of his jewels. It's wonderful. Nothing. Just look at the list. Don't even bother to overanalyze it. It's not. It's what they were. These are the people who were impacted by the gospel and gloriously changed. It can be true for you this morning. Don't ignore that opportunity. There'll be a little chance later to respond to it if you don't before. Well, through Jesus, these people were wonderfully saved. And there was no doubt about their position. Their position was in Christ, just as these verses indicate we've just read. But that positional truth needs to be worked out in practice. In other words, the Holy Spirit wants to shape us that we might be what we are in Christ, that we might live as he's made us to be. And Paul's letter is provoked by the fact that these Christians are somewhat immature. They're quite childish. It's taking quite a while for them to grow up in God. And that's not unknown for us, I'm afraid, all of us. We have to grow. We've got that position secure in Christ. It needs to work out in our lives. And the Holy Spirit will work on us. And this was happening here. Now, this particular church was still riddled with a lot of non-spiritual, non-Jesus-like behavior. There was a lot of arguing. There was a lot of division. There was pride. There was open sin in some cases. But a lot of self-centered abuse of the gifts of the Spirit, just self-drawing attention to themselves. And actually, it's that that has provoked this letter. You need to know that. Paul is writing 1 Corinthians 14. This is important for the context. He's writing it because of problems of disorder, problems of pride, problems of insensitivity to others and dishonoring God by how they behave towards each other. Paul is not primarily doing teaching on tongues, prophecy, or actually women's role, which you will find in verses 34 to 35, which can raise some questions if you take it out of context. But they don't need to have those questions. There's other parts in 1 Corinthians where he talks about women prophesying and praying. You have to remember the context. The context is bringing order where it was inappropriately disorderly. And that's what's behind it all. Probably verses 33 and 40 sum up his main theme. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the congregation of the Lord's people. Everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So we need to hear that. He wants everything done when we gather together, the Holy Spirit wants it done in a fitting and orderly way. We're not into chaos in an unhelpful way. 
But I want you to notice something else. And I think this is really important. They've got problems of all sorts causing this chaos. People shouting out in tongues without interpretation, shouting over the top of each other, prophesying over the top of each other. Listen, isn't there an easier answer than what we have here? The easy answer is stop it all. No one bring a tongue publicly. No one bring a prophecy. Women don't contribute. Nobody does anything. We have one person at the front who does it all. That's an easier answer, isn't it? So for 2,000 years, the church has always drifted towards that answer. Always. Whether it's priests or vicars or pastors or even worship leaders in our day and age. One person at the front is going to do it all and we're going to be passive spectators. We will try and involve ourselves, but that's it. Because it's a much simpler answer. It's much harder to deal with the, the, the cross-currents and what, of what our spirit is doing and what we can and can't listen to and how to three at a time and weigh it and all the stuff he puts in here. But, but the Holy Spirit has given us this. It is not the simple answer. One man or one woman ministry. One or two people at the front do it all. And the rest of you sit quiet. That's not the answer the Holy Spirit gives us. And we have to accept that. And we have to enjoy that. But honestly, it's the truth, isn't it? And we're much, the, the chapter could have been about three verses long. Shut up, all of you, and let the leaders do it. <laughs> Fine, game over. But that is not what it says. It's incredible when you think of the context, how much the Holy Spirit and Paul have made an effort to not swamp what the Holy Spirit does, not swamp the body ministry, not swamp it, but try and help them to cope with it and to manage it well. I'd love to spend loads of time on prophecy in tongues. I really would, but I've got to watch it off blow, yeah. But let me just, if you're not, not well known it, here's a lovely, in my opinion, a good um, sort of uh, definition of what prophecy is. This is from Michael Green who, in his commentary on Corinthians. So this is what prophecy is. A word from the Lord through a member of his body inspired by the Holy Spirit and given to build up the rest of the body. Clearly, in their meetings, there was a lot of prophecy. There were a lot of now words from the Lord for people to build them up and encourage them. And actually, Paul is very uh, promoting of prophecy. He uses the phrase, eagerly desire it, twice in verses 1 and verse 39. It's obviously a good thing. He wants them to prophesy. Now, when it comes to tongues, he is a little quieter about it or a little bit more uh, exercising more discipline about it. Let's not um, run over too quickly. I don't think I've got time for this. I put up all the verses about prophecy. Just let's go through them quickly. Let's just read them. There's three of them. But the one who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. Anyone who speaks in a tongue edifies themselves, but the one who prophesies edifies the church. So prophecy will have a value for all. If an unbeliever, next one, or an inquirer comes in while everyone is prophesying, they're convicted of sin, brought under judgment by all, as the secrets of their hearts are laid bare. They'll fall down, worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. Paul sees this gift as having quite a key role in opening hearts to the Holy Spirit. 
Two or three prophets should speak and the others should weigh carefully what's said. For you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. He clearly sees a number of people prophesying. He thinks it needs order, it needs a little bit of direction, but he certainly doesn't think it should not be happening. He wants them to eagerly desire it. Speaking in tongues appears to be more private. So if we just throw up the next verse, anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to people but to God. No one understands them. They utter mysteries in the Spirit. When you speak in a tongue, you're more likely to edify yourself than the church, so it needs a bit of help. So the next one says, uh, Paul says, I speak in tongues a lot on my own, but in the church I'd rather keep to things that you understand. So if we go on quickly to 1 Corinthians 14, verses 27-28. So if you publicly bring a tongue... Two or at the most three should speak. One at a time, someone must interpret. If there's no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church, speak to himself and God. So there's real sense here that he wants contributions. Even the verse we started with, verse 26, mentions tongues and interpretation in the list. So it's clearly something that happens. But there is an intelligent balance between something that needs interpreting to benefit people because what happens in our gathering should benefit everybody. They should be edified, benefiting. And so he says prophecy has got a greater place in that than tongues. But let's talk in the last 10 minutes, about the meetings. Because this isn't the main thing I want to say, but it is an important thing, probably half of what I wanted to say in this bit. Because what we get from these chapters are some very clear guidelines about what happened when the early church came together. And I would argue what happens still when God's people gather together. It's what the Holy Spirit wants to happen anyway. First of all, in church meetings, everyone was involved. Now, We'll get there in a moment, just quickly. Obviously, everyone in a room like this, or even a room a quarter of this size, everyone can't literally publicly take part. But there is behind this an expectation that everyone is engaged in what we do. That the church is a body. 1 Corinthians 12, in great detail actually, unpacks that we are, as a local church, like a a human body where every different member has a part to play and we're all alive and active and working together for the good of the body. And church is not a spectator sport at any level. Church is involving people. It's community. It's a body. And we're all involved, actually, all the time in one way. But when we gather together like this to worship... It's not a spectator sport. We are all involved. We're all engaged in the worship. We have parts to play maybe in how we behave to each other because we're church when we're together, when we gather, when we talk, when we have tea, coffee, when we pray for each other. And when we are actually going through our worship time together, we all are active and involved. That's very important to understand. Now, in verse 26 that we read earlier, It says this, when you come together, and then it gives a list of things that might happen. And I think Paul has in mind all the sorts of meetings that they would have had. Like us, they would have had big gatherings like this. They would have had meetings in homes. They would have had possibly informal little meetings. They might have had, in their case, open-air meetings. We don't often have so many of those. But they would have had gatherings in all sorts of contexts. And I think there is a genuine Holy Spirit word here, whenever you come together. 
whenever you come together, in your house groups, on your Sunday mornings, in your prayer meetings, come expecting to contribute. And obviously, the smaller the gathering, the more easy it is to contribute. And come then expecting that God, what do you mean, John, contribute? Well, God's going to give you something. He's going to give you a reading, a word of instruction, a song, or a, or a tongue, or an interpretation, or a prophetic word, or a picture, or something. There's a sense in which that's how the Holy Spirit works. He's working in all of you, and when you come together, you will all have a part to play in what happens whenever you meet together. It will not be in the hands of just one or two. Let's quickly move on. Singing. I'm not going to say a lot of this, but historically, sometimes, churches have got funny about music and singing. It's quite obvious they sang. We've, heard, we, we've read this morning two verses that refer to it. One to singing in the Spirit, and one to bringing a hymn or contributing with song, which is in verse 26. And we know from the Bible and from history that when they gather together, they would have done what we call corporate singing. They might have had solo singing. The songs would sometimes be ways by which people learnt Scripture because many of them couldn't read or couldn't write, didn't have Bibles like we have. So songs probably played a big part of, in, in, in helping people to get Scripture. They definitely would have sung together a lot as a community. And there were clearly also spontaneous singing in the Spirit, which is sort of what's referred to here in passing. Let's move on to edification. So everyone's involved. They'll be singing when they gather together. Edification. Now, that's a funny word, and it basically just means build up. And this point is an interesting counterpoint to some of the things we've already said. I, I mean, I've said, and it's right, that our worship is all for God when I was preaching, and it is. But our gatherings will also benefit us. They're not just for God in that sense. They're also for us. It's like a two-way communication. God wants us built up as well as his name praised and lifted high. And so when we come together, we are looking to be built up as Christians. And that will be partly through the preaching, but not exclusively at all. Partly through the worship, the singing, the, the tongues or interpretation, the prophecy. All these elements will look for building people up. And a very simple fact, guideline, is this. If you are going to contribute to a gathering, home group or Sunday morning or prayer meeting, you should always think, is this beneficial for other people? Is this going to build them up? It ought to be absolute first thing that crosses your mind. Your contribution, whether you are officially, if you like, leading a worship leader or a preacher like me, or it's an informal contribution, should not be, what's this doing for me? Is this an opportunity for me to promote myself? Is this an opportunity for me to, to put my songs out there so they can all learn them? You know, that's not the way, or my opportunity to show off my ideas or my politics or whatever I'm interested in. I've got you for half an hour, I can say what I like. No, 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 rubbish. All of it is to build people up. The whole thing is, what's God doing here to build them up? What's God doing here to encourage them or comfort them or direct them or bless them or even speak right into their lives and open their hearts? Whoa, God's amongst us. That's the way we've got to think. In fact, it's the only valid way to think. So even as you contribute, and you won't always know if it fits, and, but even as you contribute, you're thinking, I, th I think this might be good for people. I think this is what God wants to say. It's a way of thinking, and it's a correct way of thinking. 
and we need to know that we can control what we bring. It's the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of prophets. We don't have to blurt things out. We're not meant to be doing things in ecstatic, thoughtless, sort of, it's God, so I don't care what others think. That's just not how it is. We're conscious of the body and edifying the body. Nor are we just saying, hey, my opportunity to show something about myself. Those things are not the right things. Open meetings, fourth point, only four. Open meetings, what's clear from what we read here, and it's, it's several places, but verses 23 and 24, it's particularly clear, is that Paul expects, and I would argue this would have been common then everywhere, Paul expects that there will not just be Christians in the meetings, fully committed, baptized, Jesus-following Christians. There will be what he calls inquirers, which are people who are seriously thinking about following Jesus, but probably haven't yet committed themselves, a bit like people on an Alpha course in some ways. And there will be complete non-believers, people there who don't yet really show an awful lot of interest, haven't made the first step. There are at least three categories of people, very different, believers, inquirers, and unbelievers. And here's another thing churches have been weird about. To be honest, church meetings are never supposed to be exclusive gatherings, which are so weird and holy that only certain people can come into them, and everybody else is kept right out. That's not what's here, is it? This is the Bible, for goodness sake. Where does it all start? It starts here. Throw away all about 80% of history sometimes, tradition, and you get it to the Bible. For goodness sake, the, these meetings are not weird and exclusive. People are here to meet God. People come in, and we want them to meet God. That's the sense of it. So that's the sense of it. Inquirers and unbelievers were clearly welcome and Paul expects them to be present during the worship services with the gifts operating, I might add. And he expects them to come under conviction through what happens through the gifts. That's interesting. He expects the gifts to have a part in the process of bringing them to God. But Paul warns that we need to be, to use Steve's phrase last week, visitor aware. We are visitor aware. We are not to do things that look so odd and beyond understanding that it just makes people go away shaking their heads, feeling even more outsiders. That's the thrust of something he says, which we haven't time to unpick, that if tongues are not interpreted, it makes them feel even more outside. But if they're interpreted, that'll be fine because they'll understand what's going on. He doesn't say don't do any tongues at all if you have unbelievers there, by the way. Notice that. But we're not to indulge or be self-centered or ignorant or ignoring of the fact that some people around us will not be engaged properly. We'll be aware of them and help them. Right, so here's my conclusion. A few points. There is no doubt that the New Testament church gatherings were full of life, praises, singing, and Holy Spirit-inspired utterances. Of course, there was order and control and discipline. So it's in these chapters. Paul is saying two or three at a time, one at a time, two or three, and then stop and weigh it. And of course we have to have discipline. Of course we have to have order. But essentially... Behind that, we don't want to swamp the life and creativity and vitality that the Holy Spirit brings to the body of Christ. Secondly, everything we do needs to be aimed at edifying or building up 
Christians. And conscious of the fact that we have amongst us people who aren't yet followers of Jesus. So there needs to be sometimes a little bit of explanation or a little bit of help for them uh, if need be. But we want you here, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we love having you here. And actually, we expect God to speak to you. Now, when God speaks to you, it may not always be comfortable and cosy. Can I just say that to you? You may actually find it sometimes a little disturbing. We can't iron that out, but we do not want to be rude or ignorant or unaware of visitors amongst us. But I want to say to the visitors, God is always loving, God is always good, but he isn't always comfortable and he isn't always cosy. And sometimes what God does amongst us can be wonderful and slightly scary at the same time. So we just will do the best we can, and if you're a visitor, be open to what God will say to you. We're committed to trying to follow this through as best we can, what the Bible tells us to do. And remember, we worship a God who loves to speak to us. He's a God who speaks. He's a God who's here now, who's... who's, uh, imminent. That means he's with us, God with us. And he wants you to hear from him. And this is Christian and, and not yet Christian. He wants to speak to you. He will speak to you when we, you come to a gathering together. Be open, be expectant, and be ready for what he says into your life. The Holy Spirit is essential for our gatherings together. And we've all got to come open to playing our part, ready to be active in worship and occasionally on the big gatherings we might well bring something don't let's just leave it to a few people to do that but in the smaller gatherings prayer meetings and house groups I want to hear a lot more from other people let's be on the front foot to bring what God gives us amen now we're going to worship for 10 minutes or so I'll hand back to Luke in a minute and we're going to break bread Just before we break bread together, I want to say that what I've been talking about this morning is the body of Christ. And I've got a verse, which I can put up the last verse in my PowerPoint, which was on my heart about breaking bread together. Because when we break bread together, we often, rightly, are very conscious of ourselves and of my little need for God, which is fine, and and maybe my sin and things like that. It's it's often a moment of meditation and quiet thought. That's fine, and there's nothing, in fact, it's very good. But actually, sometimes it's good to remember we're a group of people. We're a body breaking bread together. This is a body of people. And these verses sort of emphasize that. It's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all share the one loaf. And you know, the use of gifts, simple little gifts of love and service and prayer and healing and um, words of wisdom, are not just for coming through the microphone. They're sometimes one-to-one, just to talk to us. And so I'd certainly like us this morning to be aware of each other. I'll let Luke lead us on in a moment. When we break bread, we're a little more body conscious uh, in some ways than we, we might sometimes be. And one last thing, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then taking this bread and wine is, is not for you because it doesn't mean anything for you. We'd respect it if you left it. However, 
If you want to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, why don't you take this opportunity right now to say, Lord, I want you to wash me clean. I want you to sanctify me. I want to belong to you. I want to follow you. And if you do that and really mean it, can I encourage you actually to take the bread and wine as a commitment that I'm following Jesus and tell somebody afterwards. Please don't just keep it to yourself. Tell a friend or someone in the church to seal your act of faith. Okay, let's worship. Thank you.